This podcast is brought to you by a-eon.biz, stickerrobot.com, theminotaurproject.co.uk and pvpubs.com. Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a Remotely Interested podcast, hosted at remotely-interested.com. My guest for this episode is Bill Hurd. That's Bill with one L. Now, Bill is probably most famously known for his work on the Commodore Plus 4, as well as the Commodore 128. In more recent times, Bill has worked for websites like Hackaday, where he's done a lot of blog posting and a lot of videos. The links are below my SoundCloud profile for this podcast, if you want to go and check them out. He's also got his own company called Herdware. Now, Bill and I talk about various things, including his recent work as a narrator of the documentary 8-Bit Generation. Now, the 8-Bit Generation was an interesting one for me because when we spoke, we were at the VCF Southeast, that's Vintage Computer Festival Southeast in Atlanta, and we were fortunate enough to get a preview of this Italian-based documentary on Commodore in its 8-Bit years. And I think the really powerful thing about that documentary is the personalities that actually came out through it. And I'll talk more about that in the conclusion. Anyway, prior to talking to Bill, he recently did an interview with my friends over at the Retro Hour, Dan and Ravi. So what I tried to do with this is not so much repeat the great interview that they did, but try and steer the interview in a little bit of various different directions where maybe Bill hadn't gone before. Bill is a very personable human being and he engages with, you know, communities of all types on a regular basis. So it was nice to kind of try and ask him something and get that challenge. Anyway, we talk about various things, including, you know, obviously the stresses and strains of Commodore. We even talk a little bit about Sir Clive Sinclair, but again, more about that at the end. So, as I said in episode 8, this one kind of ties in with what Jerry Manock was saying. I think a sub-theme to this one is all about the emerging computing market of the 1980s, and by that I mean computing going from a hobbyist movement to a full consumer product whereby anybody could use it. You could still be a tinkerer, but you didn't necessarily have to be building these things on a chip-by-chip or box-by-box basis. Anyway, I will leave you with Bill. Bill, how would you describe your career? Burnout, sporadic, chaotic. No, the early days were wonderful. Just to have been in the right place at the right time and end up in a place like Commodore and keep a job. You know, so that was uh, when I was uh, young and had energy and testosterone. And, uh, you know, when you come out of a place like that, you're damaged, right? So I ended up working at trauma centers and working on ambulances to get that stress that you need. And I've even had an incident where somebody said, well, I was a bad one. I said, no, man, I worked at Commodore. <laughs> you know, so that wasn't so bad. So and, and then um, later the entrepreneur thing hit me and I've been, you know, own my own company or working for myself for the last 20, 25 years. And there's no looking back from that. OK, so tell me a little bit more about the 8-Bit Generation documentary then and how that came about and what your involvement with it was yeah what a great documentary from uh, from our Commodore viewpoint from us because we've haven't seen that story really told you know there's a book by Brian Bagnell that talks about it uh, you know in, in that media but nobody talks about Commodore because quite simply Apple won we're gone I'd even go so far as to say history's getting rewritten on a weekly basis, and we know it, and we, we put it. But at the same time, there was this tremendous story with Commodore and the personality of Jack Trammell, the personality of Chuck Peddle, you know, uh, bringing custom chips to a business and uh, then making for the masses instead of the classes, making them cheap when you could sell them for more and deciding not to sell them for more, to sell them for cheap. And that, that was a great, it is a story that needed to be told. 
And how did it feel for you actually going over that as a narrator or a narrator rather of seeing people that you knew talking about it from their point yeah. of view? What was uh, that like? Well, I was picked because of my emotional involvement. They, they uh, you know, I, I knew these topics, most of them, you know, and, and then I had emotional reactions to other ones. And they, they counted on some of that to come through where they just said, be yourself in this line or something. Um, uh, but I did have to do one redo because of my emotional involvement. Uh, the line had been, uh, Apple's floppy drive worked surprisingly well. And they sent back a note that said, don't be so sad this time when you tell it, you know, because I, I, it was supposed to be good news. Apple's floppy drive worked well, and I was saying it from a Commodore point of view. Apple's disk drive worked pretty well. <laughs> So it's not so sad. So in terms of things like the Commodore Plus 4 and stuff like that, we're at the VCF Southeast at the moment, and you brought yes. up an interesting point in your talk earlier where you were observing what, in this case, Sinclair was doing with the Spectrum. Right. How much of that was going on in terms of looking at what other people were doing and then kind of reacting to it? Because I know, for instance, when I spoke to Dave Needle, he spoke about how he had looked at the RISC computer at the, at the end of the 80s when he was working at Apple and then actually built a, a RISC computer of his own before he'd actually looked at the RISC chips that Acorn were bringing out and then he used those to put in his prototype. Okay. So how much of that was going on from the 8-bit generation point of view? The, the Sinclair was kind of beat Jack to where Jack wanted to be, I think, and I learned this from watching the video, where he did the cheap things first. I mean, now they were too cheap in some instances where the mem you know, the membrane keyboard had no tactile fill and the, the display would go out while it was actually running, right? Uh, but he mastered the cheapness and Jack liked that from what I gathered. He targeted that and that's where the TED series or the 116 came from, that chick-lidded keyboard and whatnot. And what I learned from, uh, from narrating the video was how big it was in Europe. That was kind of lost on us. And uh, the, the filmmakers are Italian. They're going, no, no, my first one was a, or my first experiences in a lot of cases were the, um, were the Sinclairs, Sir, Sir Clive Sinclair. I even learned his, his full. Uh, and and then, then we did get into a battle with Apple. And the, that was the last one I knew where Jack, was cognizant of anybody else in the market, and we, they call it the Apple killer. They wanted to put Apple to bed, knock them out of the market, and, and take it over, and that's what the C64 was supposed to do. So meanwhile, I'd learned at the anniversary that uh, they had been in talks for Commodore to buy Apple, and Steve Jobs wanted 45,000, and, and Tramiel only offered 15. So a, a sale did not go through that year. So, and it, just picture how, you know, that, that's such a little amount of money to have made a change. What if it had gone through? Where would we be? Uh, and that's, that's a big turn in the road right yeah. there. And I'll even say, you know, Apple made Commodore a better computer co uh, company. Made, we made our products better. That competition. Uh, and again, some of these details, we didn't ask, well, what'd you do before? You know, when we're around our old friends, we talk about our successes or things we have in common. But, you know, we were slow to color, you know, because a scientific or a business machine can be green and black. You know, that was a concept in Commodore. And uh, we had, Chuck Peddle had written really good cassette code where he actually had an off-center cap stand and it would still work, you know, while speeding up and slowing down. And so that, because that worked so well, they didn't feel they needed a floppy. Well, Apple upped the game 
you know, with their floppy drive and their color, hence the line Apple's floppy drive worked exceedingly well, which I was so sad about. But it was true. It made, it made us do, we had to get in there with a serial or, you know, with a, uh, a floppy drive and color, the VIC-20 and things. So they made us better. So tell me a little bit more of your um, entry or attempted entry into the 16-bit generation with things like the Z8000 before, before Commodore bought Amiga. Right. Yeah, what we call Z8000. Yeah, we don't say the Z. But the, um, that was a strange marriage. That was a strange product that its time came and went while it was still in early development. And, and some of that was our fault. Um, you know, the, the 68000 was there. But Zilog was proud of the fact that they used like one third the transistors of the Motorola. Ooh, well that's like saying how many bricks are in your house? Do you really care? Um, but we had T-shirts going one third, you know, because it is less power, you know, heat. But do you really care? And then the project did not get run aggressively. In fact, the project started to look like their their main t uh, uh, topic was camouflage. You know, they would run to their offices and hope you didn't see them because you might get fired, you know, that day or something. So uh, they they were, they never really took off. Um, it, we showed it show after show and then one year just, we didn't, and it was gone. So what they, we did like, they call, we called them the, the Z people, right? And, and there were some brilliant people in that group, right? Again, it's about leadership or lack of, right? But one of the things they did that we really liked, and we, we stopped giving them a hard time for at least a month, is they stole all the furniture out of the lobby, and they made their own lounge up in the area. They had redone the, the, those walls, those modular walls, so it was even hard to get into. The managers couldn't figure it out. And we called it the Z Lounge, you know, because they, they we're like, wow, you, you go. <laughs> if you've got the, if you got the Chahungas to steal the, the uh, furniture out of the front lobby, go for it. That, that was their biggest claim to fame at the time for us. Wow. Uh, it's almost like a Monty Python sketch. Wow. Oh, don't get me started. We did a lot of Monty Python back then. We're still doing it, and people just look at me funny. It's like, uh, sorry, you were the Brit here. It's fine. I understand. <laughs> yeah. So, so what was it like for you then? And what memories do you have of Amiga being acquired, coming at it from the Commodore end? Yeah, the, of course, I was really busy, like going into the 128. And, but we knew it was coming. And I was actually, uh, the, we called it the sandbox group that had gone and looked at it. And Adam Schwanier is running the process of trying to get it. And uh, I, I forget the gentleman's name that ran the sandbox group. And a friend of mine, uh, Benny Pruden, was in it. And then when it came in to be evaluated more widely, uh, the vice president gave me a copy because, you, you know, I was one of the leads on my end. So what, what do you think? And my, my response was an awful lot of pictures of tanks in the specifications because it's written to be a game machine, right? And so I didn't know that I was flagging the thing that would be the thing to flag, which was that to be a business machine, there's some changes you would need to make to this. So uh, I was supposed to be in charge of the PAL uh, version of it uh, for a week, and it was at the end of that week I tendered my resignation because I was going somewhere else anyways. I, I didn't think we were really following through. I didn't know if we were going to move to California. Remember, Jack's gone. The company's banging off the walls, and even in spite of the Amiga, we, we didn't know where Westchester was going to be. And, and so I had at that time chosen to leave. So I didn't get a lot of overlap with that Amiga other than, um, you know, meeting Dave Needle, I was really saddened to hear, I just recently heard he passed. Uh, the, uh, I reposted, I think it was your post, uh, I've reposted that myself. Um, 
you know, when I, when I met Needle was at uh, the CES show. He brought his toys. I brought mine. And then we, we pulled his schematic out on a pile of boxes and, you know, giggled and pointed and laughed at each other's stuff. You know, like, oh, I, I had to do that kind of things. So it was, yeah. And so I was sorry to not catch up to him more. And what were your thoughts on Commodore as a chip manufacturer and how it affected the company? Oh, we were magicians. Or to put it this way, the magicians worked three, col- three rows over from me, you know, in the offices. It, it is what made us. I mean, you could go buy chips and put together a computer defined by those chips. Or you could tell somebody what you wanted a chip to do. And if you did it right, you'd get back a chip that did most of what you asked for in two or three months in some cases. And the 128, for example, I had five months really to do it from when I started to when I showed it in CS. I had four custom chips I needed. And uh, the four that I, the, the, the three that I specified came in like gangbusters. People like Dave DiOrio were ahead, of, were ahead of the project for the modified VIC chip and thing. They were wonderful. And the one that gave me all the trouble that almost ruined CS for us was we tried to reuse the 80 column chip from the Z8000 machine, because once it went, out, went down the tubes, they were trying to find a home for the chip. And uh, the guy asked me, you know, I said, well, do you want to use this? I said, well, is it a, does it use 6845 timings, which to an engineer implies all kinds of setup and hold times and things. And he said, yes. Well, he should have said, what? I don't know what you're asking. And so I took the chip without doing due diligence, and that burned me. So I had to, uh, you know, get that chip to work in spite of it. But other than that one instance, that 80 column 8563, I mean, they were magicians. You know, who could do what we did? And the answer was, if you, had to, if you needed to do it, you had to come buy a chip from us if we'd sell you one. And we're not selling Vic chips. <laughs> so it was, it was magicians. In terms of the business relationships and how it impacted on Commodore and what they were developing, you mentioned a little bit earlier in your presentation about like the Atari phones and looking at that uh-huh. because they were a customer. How much of that kind of went on? Oh, yeah. The, we, it, we lifted the Atari font right out of the ROM because we made their ROMs. And, uh, you know, it, it, when I say that, we had to tape the PG tape for it and stuff. Um, and then I had sent for, uh, somebody had collected all of the Atari cartridges. You know, this was back when you'd save your money for a cartridge for the 2600. And I had a whole pile and I was just going to make it so I could load in a RAM, you know, and, and pick any game I wanted. But the truth is I had work to do, <laughs> but it would have been cool to, but then the, you know, the story you may be, uh, alluding to was what, what I just told here a little earlier today about where, um, the you know we were the biggest supplier of the ROMs for the Atari cartridges for Atari, and we had a, a motto that said you'll get it by Christmas. We even had a big a big poster that said uh, you know with a picture of Santa Claus and a bag full of ROM chips. And we, just one year it was like they're coming, they're coming. No, they're not. You're not getting you know. And the moral of the story was don't count on your competition for you know for anything, especially if Jack Tramiel's involved. So, and he, he would do things, these are urban legends that are substantiated, so it's kind of in the 90% truth area, you know, with different details probably. But the, um, we would do things like place an order uh, for a huge amount of chips, you know, you were, uh, I forget, uh, blank, bigger than blanket orders, we'd make commitments. And then once they had made them at you know a considerable cost, he'd say, "No, we don't want them. Go ahead and sue me if you want." Well, meanwhile, in while they contemplate suing them, they have to dump them just to get their money back out of them. And we're buying them literally off the streets of Akihabara in Japan, you know, for pennies on the dollar. And that happened a couple times when I was there. 
So, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> he, he declared war on everybody. And that comes out in the video. You know, his, his distributors, you know, they shouldn't be making big money off us, you know, or our competitors shouldn't be making, you know, so it was war on everybody. So as a, as a Jack Tramiel guy, what's your fondest memories of Jack Tramiel? Actually, I didn't speak um, to Jack directly until he worked for Atari. Right. So I've been in his presence barely, you know, and so, and, and he, he was felt in our department, even though he didn't come over and see us by the time we're in Westchester. And we called the act of going and getting the marching orders, you know, going up the mountain and coming back with like things, Ten Commandments written on PC boards and things. Um, so it wasn't till uh, the CES show where I'm showing the, uh, you know, the, the C-128. And somebody wanted me to go over to the Atari booth, which was just a ridiculous request. But the, the guy in marketing felt that he outranked me, so I went over. And this time when we were told is, in general, if you go to the Atari booth, you will be fired, you know, because they didn't want us giving away secrets. Or uh, So I walk over there, and there's Jack Tramiel, closer than really I'd, I'd seen while working for him. And I stuck my hand out and said, you know, Mr. Tramiel, I worked for you, just da-da-da. And a crowd instantly forms, right? Because they want to see what Jack's talking about. Well, I know them all, right? So uh, what I didn't catch was Jack had nodded and touched his nose or something. And suddenly somebody grabs me and says, yes, Jack's serious about his offer he just made you. So the, so I even got a job offer during the time that when I was in the Atari booth. And uh, yeah, Fred Bowen had said it well. That's, that's when you, surrounded by all the Atari management like that, that's when you reach in your coat and pull the pin on the grenade and just take one for the team, you know, just take out the whole management. So, but that, and then my most memorable time after that was the 64 anniversary. Uh, he had he had gone there. He he come out. I flew to California because he was going to be make a public appearance. He just didn't do that, and um, he he shared at the time that he had been a a, tele, a radio or I'm sorry a typewriter repairman while I was in the army. Well, I was a teletype repairman when I was in the army. So suddenly we had all this in common. I ended up, uh, you know, we talked several times during the day. And uh, then I got to be real good friends with Leonard, who I still stay in touch with, Leonard Tramiel. And what are the sons up to now then? What do they do now? Um, Leonard works at the Center for Scientific Inquiry, though the, the name just changed and stuff. So he's, you know, he, he has like a PhD in astrophysics. So he's He's doing the stuff that you'd love to do if you could do that kind of stuff, right? And I'm not quite sure what his sons are doing, uh, but they seem to still be known, like they were dropping Gary's name and stuff like that. So the Tramels are still kind of well-known in the valley there, I believe. Yeah, Sam seems to be the one that also sticks out. Now, Sam I knew because he ran the Tokyo office. And and so there was, our, there was the power of Commodore was, and I was just talking with the gentleman from Apple earlier, I said, and then we'd ship the, you know, it immediately went to production in Japan where we did our mass production. He's going, and ours went immediately to California where we did our mass, you know, so, well, how do we do that? You know, in theory, there's, there's a cheapness factor money to be made in, in Japan, but you better be stationed in Japan to do it right. You can't just send orders or you'll, you, you'll get garbage back. So we had an office and Mitsumi had a relation with us. Like we, you know, we'd say custom keyboard and be two weeks they deliver or, or a monitor or something like that. And that's because of the way Japanese do business, their, their commitment to each other. And Sam ran that office. So we had under Jack's strict control, a foreign company office that enabled our masses, you know, making for the masses, not the classes. So we designed from the very beginning for cheapness.
stuff. And if my product lasted too long, I didn't do my job right. It was supposed to break after three years, you know. So, which goes against most engineering. Yeah. So, moving on from that then, what do you do now with Hackaday? Well, I do um, a videos for them, kind of where the idea, it's a, it's a 10 to 12 minute format, so it's not a long drawn out. It, it's a fast paced format where I talk about an engineering topic. And I tend to like make a whole circuit or a PC board, so I'm showing a, you know, what's different about me than I don't, bre I don't use the breadboard hardly at all, the, the little plug-in. And, and then I'll talk about it from an engineer's point of view, like how to tell if something's too hot, how to, I just did differential signaling for how to get down long lengths of cable and why grounds are important in that. So it's, it's kind of seen from an engineering point of view. Um, so I, as, as I say, I'm their resident uh, uh, relic, you know, from the past. So it's, but it's, it's a lot of fun. And what's your thoughts on, you know, what's now being called the maker movement? You know, Tinker is now getting recognized. And, you know, I guess it's people like yourself, Ben Heck, Jerry Ellsworth, you're all becoming notable now because so many people are kind of doing it. So they're looking to people like yourselves to right, right. figure out stuff and bounce stuff off of. What's your sort of thoughts well, on that? Well, and it's funny because uh, Jerry was at the uh, event this, this Wednesday where we were showing the film. So we got pictures of Chuck Peddle, me and Jerry all, you know, like we call it three generations of 6502. Um, you know, this, this maker movement's great. You know, it, forget for a moment that the processor really is a 20-year-old processor we used to use in keyboards and stuff like that. They created the environment where you can pick it up and do something. I.O., it's about I.O. anyway. It's not about the processor, but it's like, can you tell if it's going to rain and close your chicken doors? You know, I mean, it's those kind of things. And it's just, you know, it's, it's obviously phenomenal that they have, for years you could do things in computer programming, but now you can do things in computer stuff you can hold in your hands. And I think that's really cool. And you see some of the exhibits here, you know, where you, you open it up and all the blinking lights and the, and the, and the noise makings, as we used to say. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's amazing stuff. And at Hackaday, then, I just see the things you'd never think somebody took the time to do. Even if they took the time to think of it, they took the time to do it. And that just blows my mind. There were several key takeaways I found interesting about Bill's interview. The one that stood out for me most about him in particular was this idea of planned obsolescence at Commodore. How, as an engineer, we're not meant to be building a product to last because Commodore wanted you to buy the next one. It was kind of ironic we were talking about that at the VCF Southeast because the people that were there were keeping all of these systems alive well beyond their period of planned obsolescence. Now, the other thing I found interesting was actually having the opportunity to watch the 8-bit generation because we were able to basically see a preview, which was very nice. And two of the things that struck me most about it was, one, the relationship between Commodore and Sir Clive Sinclair and what he was doing with the Spectrum, um, in that basically they had done what Jack wanted to do, which was make an, an affordable computer for the masses. And the other thing I found interesting as well was the idea that Jack's personality was very much ingrained within Commodore itself. And I think that's an important thing now if we look at it retrospectively, where it went off the rails and essentially died, you know, for a company like that that was in the running with the Microsofts, the IBMs and the Apples of this world to no longer be around, it's kind of sometimes easy to forget about it when it went bankrupt because it was a big player. Hello there, my name's Adam Spring and I'm here to talk to you about a number of ways in which you can stay connected with and contribute to the Remotely Interested podcast. As I've said before, it's listener supported and I love to include you guys as, as much as I can. Anyway, the big two are iTunes and SoundCloud, which you can subscribe to. Also for SoundCloud, you can follow, you can like, you can share. You can do a number of things with the content that I put up there. There's also Google Play where you can check this podcast out. And there's also a Facebook page that you can like. 
Now, in terms of connecting with me directly, there's a Twitter handle, which is at that interested. You can also follow and reach out to me there. And there's also the remotely interested email as well, which is contact at remotely-interested.com. Anyway, I love doing this for you. I hope you enjoy it. And thanks for listening to the show. So yeah, one of the things that I do do with some spare time is I've got herdware.com. As you know, my last name's Herd, and so it's Herdware, and that's from an Easter egg that's in the old Commodores uh, the programmers put in there. But in there, I'm, I'm trying starting a collection of things that you could learn electronics on, for example, FPGAs and CPLDs where you can learn to program one of those. And for example, one's in a 40-pin chip, so maybe you could even replace a chip by programming it in an obsolete chip or something. And then uh, one of the things that doesn't go to breadboard well are analog circuits. So I tend to make little circuit boards for like amplifiers, instrumentation amplifiers, thermal couples, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, get, looking to do some educational circuits and more hopefully in the future on hardware.